HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Comté-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. This is Elena Santigade, host of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for the past year, and I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio made from two recycled shipping containers because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories from the world of cheese. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate right now. You can even show your cheese love by selecting Cutting the Curd in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hello, and welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Elena Santigate. On today's Cheesemaking Elements show, we're jumping ahead to the final step in the cheesemaking process, affinage, also known as aging or maturing. So that we're all on the same page with our vocab during this episode, the person or the company responsible for this process is often called an affineur. In many cases, the cheesemaker is also the affineur, and in some cases, they're the farmer too. But there is a long history, especially in France, of affinage happening separately from the cheesemaking by an entirely different person or company. The Oxford Companion to Cheese defines cheese maturing as the management of changes in the flavor, aroma, texture, and appearance of cheese between the completion of the cheesemaking process and the point at which the cheese is ready to be eaten. I wanna take that apart a little bit today in today's episode. First, the word management jumps out at me. While the fats, proteins, water, bacteria, yeasts, molds, enzymes, and salt all mingle and do their work to grow the rind and ripen the cheese, the affineur manages the process and works to keep the cheese on track toward that first delicious bite. Controlling the environment is a big piece of the puzzle. The affineur makes adjustments for humidity, temperature, airflow, and air exchange. 
They often make these adjustments differently depending on the cheese, and they have a unique opportunity to exert influence on the cheese rind specifically. Finally, my guests today are Caroline Hess and Ethan Partika of the Brooklyn-based affineur Crown Finish Caves. Crown Finish Caves is a cheese aging facility and New York State licensed dairy plant located in the former beer lagering tunnels in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. They receive what they call green cheese, a young rindless cheese, from local producers and also from cheesemakers overseas. Their primary cave holds 28,000 pounds of cheese and is consistently at capacity. Caroline is the director of sales and Ethan is the cave manager. Welcome to you both to Cutting the Curd. Thank you. So happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so first I kind of want to jump into the more technical aspects of the aging and maturing that you're doing here in Brooklyn. Um, So let's dive deep into kind of a specific question, which is, if you have two very different cheeses in the cave... How do you treat them? Like, what are the different things that you do in the cave to manage those processes processes differently? Um, sure. <clears throat> um, a big part of it is, uh, first, where they're located in the cave. Um, so we do have a general flow where uh, most of our wash rinds are towards the front of the cave, and then more of the sort of wild, uh, moldy rinds are towards the back. Um, and that follows mm. the uh, airflow direction from the cave. So that way, we're not potentially um, uh, introducing unwanted molds on some of our washed rinds. So there is a general flow and sort of organizational um, arrangement to how the cheese is laid out. Um, mm-hmm. But more generally, um, it's just in the specific treatment of the, of the different cheeses. And whether that's washing or brushing, um, each cheese has its particular program uh, that fits the type of cheese that it is. Now, did you, did you go out the gate with that design here at Crown Finish in terms of where to place, you know, placing certain cheeses sort of, uh, let's say, like upstream from others? Or is that something you've learned over time? It's definitely something that has uh, come through trial and error. Mm-hmm. You sort of learn which cheeses like certain areas um, or, or don't like certain areas, um, as the case may be. Um, we have one area in particular that uh, only really only one cheese does well in it, and so that's the cheese that stays in that area because we try other things there and it just doesn't work out. It's very interesting, almost like the New York City of the cave. Yeah. It's not for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and it used to be our R and D section, which was not a great place to put it. Mm. Um, sort of so all the re- all the research projects were failing. <laughs> <laughs> not not so much, but just not reaching their their full potential. Mm. So it, it's been repurposed for other areas. And one of the things we learned was if we are doing R and D we need to do R&D um, with the cheese in the area that it will most likely be uh, in, in the cave. That way we can see what it will actually do in that, in that particular environment. Interesting. So um, very, very interesting. Now I imagine R&D was something I, I'm curious about and I wanna hear more about how many R&D projects you have going on at any given time. <laughs> but I imagine, Caroline, you also kind of come into play here as you're ta- out there in the marketplace talking to people about what they need. Do you find that um, you're sort of bringing ideas from your customers or are you also connecting with other cheesemakers about what kind of affinage projects they might be interested in partnering with you on? Um, I think it's kind of a, a mixed bag. So I think a really good example of that is 
actually the barn burner, mm-hmm. which you were witness to that whole yes, process. I was, I was on, in the, uh, you know, you didn't choose the name I had in mind for that cheese, which I think was a smart marketing decision, but um, it was so fun to see that process. For our listeners, can you explain, um, like, you know, how, when I was at Grafton, how we uh, were talking to you guys about that and how it came to be? Yeah, so the um, idea behind the cheese at first was kind of this idea that I'm, I'm going to give myself credit here that I had of... Um, totally, give credit. <laughs> that we needed um, a cheese that what I kind of consider our song for the radio. Mm. So something that can be at cheese counters and at specialty shops and in restaurants, but also be in like grab and go counters and, and places with more like price conscious shoppers. A cheese for the every man, so to speak. Something a little, something for everyone. For the, for the people. I yeah. was actually just saying that the other day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, yeah, I should say for the every woman. Yeah. Sorry, Ethan. <laughs> um, so I think I had some ideas of what that would look like and... Everybody else had some ideas of, of what it would look like, but basically Grafton was kind of the go-to because, you know, they can do a smoked cheddar for the range that we wanted it in, and it's a true collaborative relationship that mm-hmm. we have with Grafton and with a lot of our producers. So the R&D process, and this is a process not just in developing the recipes, but also with what Ethan was mentioning earlier of figuring out what cheeses do best in what parts of the cave. It is a process that takes place over months and months and months. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think back. It's like when when that idea of the barn burner first came up between Crown Finish and Grafton, how long was it from that point to cheese in the cave, sales, you know, boots on the ground happening? How long did that take, would you say? Off the top of my head, I would guess something around like eight or nine months. Yeah, that sounds about, that sounds about right. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that'll do it. Because how many rounds did you have of R&D on that cheese? That one was somewhat unique. <laughs> we, didn't, we really had uh, not very many. Um, we, we had an initial one um, in terms of determining what our uh, preferred smoke uh, amount was in mm-hmm. terms of duration of smoking. Um, and we, after several months kind of took what we thought was a good direction and ran with it. And we've been lucky that it was a good choice. Um, but that was, in terms of uh, the R&D that we've done, that one was probably on the, on the faster end. Mm-hmm. We really sort of took a chance with what we thought was going to be the, the correct choice. Yeah, I imagine it must be hard to predict because it's like if it goes in that tricky corner mm-hmm. or if the cheese just isn't responding the way you predict, you've got to change courses a little bit. What is the longest R&D project you think you've done? <laughs> a lot of laughter here. Um, that is a cheese that we are very close to to uh, having the way we would prefer to be. Aha, uh-huh, still in R&D. Still, still in R&D. Um, it will be uh, close to three years this fall. Um, wow. Which wor- is worth the wait? For context, that is about how long Ethan and I have worked here. Wow, so you're, you are ready to see this baby be born. Yes, we're hopefully about maybe three to four weeks away from, from the real deal. Wow. You want to you wanna give any hints? <laughs> is this, this is a fancy food show debut? No. This is a cheese that everybody has probably had before, but um, it's, the, it's the Bark Eater. Ah, yes. So, so when we started on that project... Um, there's just a lot of hurdles of getting the recipe right and figuring out how exactly to, to work with bark 
And for our customers, for our customers, for our listeners, um, can you just briefly describe what the Bark Eater is? Small format. So it's a Vacheron Mondor style mm-hmm. that we do with uh, Consider Bardwell Farm. And they have also been really excellent in going on this three-year journey with us <laughs> and, and being there for the R&D process. And um, even unless they like, went to France and it was just like, it was, it's wow. been a lot of investment, a lot of excitement with this cheese. I would disagree that the R&D process is still really going on. I think that the last couple of batches we had were really, really good. Um, and also, isn't there an element to like, with cheese making and with affinage and the, that final step before sale, isn't there always some element of R&D happening? Yeah, I mean, we there's not a cheese in the cave that isn't currently undergoing some sort of uh, change in its, its program. Um, I think it was maybe two months ago, I sat down and, and really revised um, all of our FMS programs uh, in, in, in sort of the formal way that we write them up, and none of them were the same as they had been previously written, and mm. since then, things are continually changing, um, mm. both in terms of the way the cheese is coming in, but also um, things like time management, um, different types of, uh, different things that are going on in the cave. There's a, it's a continual sort of reassessment of what is working, what's not working, and, and what do we want to see different coming out of the cheese. So when you do that assessment, are you, um, how often are you tasting the cheeses or how are you assessing them when you're sort of noting, like, what is the health of everything in the cave right now? What's going well? What's on track? Uh, can you kind of illuminate and describe that process for us a bit? Yeah, um, it is, uh, it's a combination of tasting, um, combination of looking at uh, the information that we're getting from the producers on the make level, um, which varies depending on the different producer and the different cheese. And that information would be like the moisture content, sure. the, yep. the components in the milk? Exactly. Um, and then uh, sort of visual um, observations, um, how is the rind developing, um, we're sort of using the rind as a proxy for what is happening on the interior, which is you know, the, the, where the flavor is, of course. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so we use that as a, as a, a way of assessing how things are going. Um, and then we do um, um, batch level testing, final product testing, and that's an opportunity when we're doing that to do um, tastings. Uh, so we do both formal tastings with the entire staff, and then we do more informal ones um, in the cave when we are doing uh, mm-hmm. that kind of testing. How do you, I, I'm such a technology geek that I'm also wondering, like, how do you get that data into a format where you can assess it changes over time? Do you have, like, some amazing Excel spreadsheet or is there a program you've developed? Or, like, how do you, how are you or how are you not maybe using technology to help with this kind of ongoing assessment? I have a, a, a notebook, a moleskin that I use. Um, that's, ah, analog. <laughs> that's day-to-day observations. Um, what's coming into the cave, what's going out of the cave. Um, uh, if there are uh, cheeses that are under R&D, um, that are R&D process, what are we doing at each particular step? Um, and then uh, at the end of the week, I compile that into um, a digital format that's searchable, accessible on your phone, mm. um, computer, that kind of thing. It syncs everything together. So it's handy. So it's three years of information at your fingertips. Wow, amazing. Is that something you all developed in-house? <laughs> That's just something I came up with so that I wouldn't drive myself crazy trying to remember everything. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Cave manager tool for the cave manager. <laughs> wow. Um, okay, so I'm also curious. I mean, this, this sounds very official and very, um, 
like very well thought out, you know, like it's, it's obvious you guys have a system and it, it works for you. Um, how, how did you learn how to do this even? <laughs> uh, uh, on the job training, um, mm-hmm. I, uh, went through the apprenticeship program that we offer. Um, it's a six day program, um, that really sort of, uh, we describe it as, as removing the romanticism from the affinage process. Mm. Um, it's really easy to, it's a beautiful space. It's, Fun to think that it's just all about turning cheese, but it's actually not the majority of what we do. Um, what what is the majority of what you do? <laughs> um, cleaning, logistics, um, processing things in and out of the cave, uh, but cleaning, yeah, cleaning is probably the the majority of it. You know, it's so funny. It's like working in cheese retail. People think like, oh, it's such an amazing job. You get to taste cheese all day, and they're like, really? You're mostly cleaning. Yeah. I feel like uh, this is a this is a central, a core element to working in cheese. Yes. Um, so you did the apprenticeship program here at Crown Finish, and um, that's with Benton and and it was the rest with, of the team here. Yeah, it was with um, uh, former coworkers who are um, currently no longer here, uh, but it was right at a time when there was a, an opening uh, in the cave <clears throat> in the cave position, uh, and so kind of was lucky enough to to step into that. It's a small team, it's mm-hmm. four people, um, two in the cave. Uh, Caroline doing our sales and one of the person that does our server logistics and also does um, our small format cheeses so she's in charge of that um, so yeah small small team and and uh, was lucky enough to get into that role and then subsequent to that um, in addition to, to reading as much as you can asking questions uh, meeting other people in the field um, I was lucky enough to go to um, the affinage course uh, at Mons in France Ooh. And Mons, listeners, for any of you that don't know about Mons, although they are sometimes mentioned on the show fondly, uh, they are a, a major affinor in France that also has an educational program. Correct. And Benton, um, uh, the owner, one of the owners, he was a, a pilot student for their affinage program that they now offer um, several years ago. Mm. Um, and then, uh, was it, I guess it was not this past, no, it was this past February or January, um, Leslie Goff and I went um, to Sterling to um, uh, to the Jew Thinking course with um, Yvonne Larcher. So that was that was pretty great. Very cool. Um, all right. Well, I can't believe it, but we're it's time for us to take a little quick break, and we'll be back to talk about uh, affinage and more learn more about how the Crown Finish Caves business model fits it fits into the wider world of cheese. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, 
every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm Elena Santigade, and I'm here with Caroline Hess and Ethan Partika of Crown Finish Caves. We're talking all affinage all day today. And now before the break, we chatted more about sort of how things work in the cave, assessment of the cheese, R&D, like how, how you're actually getting that cheese to a point that you feel good about. Now, once you do, uh, my next question is more about how you then get cheese into the hands of your customers. And Caroline, I assume this is a question for you as director of sales, but um, my first question is just how do you, um, you know, when you're talking to a customer, how do you explain the role that Crown Finish Caves plays in the, the entire cheese making process? And also how do you make the case for uh, you know, this final step, this separate affineur, if for a buyer who might be more uh, well-versed in just buying directly from a cheesemaker? Um, so it's always, and I, I don't think I'll ever find a way to say this that's less than like, you know, eight sentences. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it really is explaining to customers the economics of, of cheesemaking and what goes into it. A lot of customers that I talk to you know, at, at demos at Whole Foods and even like chefs in Manhattan, um, I think are so divorced from where the cheese comes from that even having to explain to them like how the, how the milk is produced, like, you know, mm-hmm. that it's, it's really telling the whole story. So I always, you know, really show it as the collaboration and the partnership that it is and kind of painting the picture of like, well, if you're a dairy farmer and you have, you know, all of these like this herd of cows and they're producing, you know, gallons of milk every day and you milk them twice a day and then you have to turn that into cheese and you have to age it. You know, it's making sure that everything runs smoothly and, and you're producing at the same rate that you're selling. It can be very difficult. I worked, um, I was an apprentice at a dairy farm for a short time because I'm not really a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I saw it kind of firsthand that, that it's just, it's, it's really tough mm-hmm. to do that. Um, so explaining, you know, that they make the cheese for us and we buy it and we do the aging and the distribution and um, it's, it's our cheese, but it's also the cheesemaker's cheese and we put their name on it. And I think something that Ethan does um, to great success is, is making sure that each cheesemaker's cheese that we have in the cave, because we have, you know, five or six different producers at the at moment. Least, yeah. How many at do least have right now? probably more like eight or nine. Yeah. It changes, but I think eight yeah. is our current number. Great. Yeah, but really making sure that each individual cheese is not only representative of what we want to show here at Crown Finish, but also representative and and is produced in a way that makes the cheesemaker proud of it as well. Hmm. Um, so I think explaining that to customers a lot of times sometimes they don't care and then sometimes they're like, wow, you never thought about that. Hmm. Like thank you. And then even after that it's still convincing them to actually buy it, put it on the menu, put it you know, at, on their table for Thanksgiving. And, and I mean, that's, I don't think, unique to the crown finish 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's kind of what sales is. Totally. And, you know, I feel like that, that economics piece of getting the cheesemaker cash sooner is also a really interesting point to make. Yeah. That if they're sitting on a cheese for an extra six months um, or a year in some cases to age it out by selling it a little sooner to another business that can then hold on to it, make that time investment mm-hmm. kind of opens things up for them as well, I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I will say too that there are still some some old heads out there who have this concept that if they buy cheese from Crown Finish, they're taking sales away from Springbrook or... Like, a, like an unnecessary middleman or something. So, so what do you say to, to folks that think that? You know, at a certain point, there's only so much that I can do, but a lot of it too is the packaging, right? So it's, it's the fact that our cheesemakers' names are on the labels and that, you know, every week when I send out the availability email, each cheese says where it comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we rep them every single step of the way. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, trying to prove it. And then I think also the cheese speaks for itself when people try it. They're like, oh, well, hold on. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> this is not what I thought it would taste like, or this is not what it tasted like when you guys opened in, you know, 2014. Mm-hmm. Plus the labels are pretty cool looking, I have to say. That is another kind of R&D project we're working on is, is getting a you know, kind of fun labels for every single cheese. So it's mm. a longer process. And also for those that don't know, our, uh, the above ground space that isn't dedicated to crown finish is all artist studios. So a lot of the labels are designed by artist tenants that we have that we are friends with and we trade them cheese and they make some drawings. Pretty good deal for an artist, I would say. <laughs> right. So um, changing gears a little bit, into like each of your personal stories. Um, do you, what do you, I guess I, this question for each of you, what do you think is unique about working in, at an affinur, an aging facility, as opposed to, you know, why not work at a cheesemaker or, um, you know, even another link in the supply chain? What, what do you feel like, like what has brought you to this unique type of business? Um, I was a mechanic, bicycle mechanic for 10 years, um, and so the tactileness of it is really something that I don't think you can quite get um, uh, sort of downstream from from where we are um, as much. Um, And then, of course, um, living in Brooklyn or New York City, sort of the greater area, um, availability of of places like this is is very limited. So um, sort of those two things uh, combined. Um, but really, a lot of it is the um, the, the hands-on tactileness, um, and then uh, the ability to um, continually learn. You know, uh, coming from a situation where having not having a background in in cheese making certainly, or even uh, the specialty uh, food area as much, um, it's been a sort of constant uh, intellectual endeavor. Mm. Does it feel to you that eight cheeses, eight, eight different cheeses in the caves is a lot, or would you like even more variety, Ethan? I'm curious about that. Well, it's eight producers, more, more than that. It's probably like 15 cheeses. Oh, it's yeah. eight producers. Yeah. 15 different cheeses. Yeah, I thought that sounded a little low. Okay, yeah. very interesting. Okay, so eight producer, eight cheesemaker relationships to kind of navigate, and 15 or so cheeses. Approximately. Approximately. Yeah, I've never know. actually these counted. Are, these are approximate numbers. Big disclaimer. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. We're not putting anything down. Uh, you know. 
yeah. in stone here. But uh, does it feel like a lot, or would you rather have even more? Um, it's it is a lot. Uh, there's a certain um, we operate on a certain level um, based on economies of scale, and so the more cheeses that we have of a particular variety, the the greater our efficiencies are, and so that we have to work in that direction to a certain extent. Um, things like our boards, our brushes, our racks, all those things are allotted out to a different producer, or if we work with both raw and pasteurized for that producer, both mm -hmm. raw and pasteurized. And so now you're, you're just sort of complicating the, the mechanics and the logistics of how we're actually working with the cheese, the more varieties we have. Um, and then there's also the sort of the implications of having certain varieties of cheese is that they really wanna have more of similar cheeses around them. And mm -hmm. so if we have only a few pieces here and there, then we're really not seeing the full uh, sort of potential of what that cheese could accomplish, um, which is another challenge in the R&D process where we're only working with often a handful of wheels from a, a single make and you're, you're sort of really relying on this one cheese to really show itself um, versus having a continual presence um, weekly, monthly, through the entire aging process that helps sort of propagate whatever it is that you want to happen to that cheese. Right, you almost need like a, it's like a, a tipping point of the community of the cheese for each one. Interesting. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of cheesemakers and, and other kind of affinage outfits will have different rooms for each different style. Right, but here, only one main it's all cave. In one space. It's all in one space, so so Ethan has to find a way to get everything to kind of get along mm -hmm. and not compete with each other and have it all, you know, be very harmonious. So that if if you know all you know things in the back of the cave, kind of you know benefit from the things in the front of the cave, and and the fact that it's not all covered in blue mold is is pretty substantial. I'm just <laughs> right. gonna say like that. It, I'm gonna just no like blue mold or the, the back yeah. on this one. <laughs> Um, and what about you, Caroline, in terms of, you know, sales? I've worked in sales for a producer. You're working in sales for an affineur that also, you know, it's not, it sh I shouldn't overlook the fact that you're basically a distributor as well, self-distributing all the product um, and uh, organizing the logistics on getting the product from the cheesemakers. Uh, what do you feel like is unique about that? How has that been for you? Oh, God, it's been... Um... It's interesting, and I think that when I joined the team, we weren't working with any other distributors. We were only self-distributing. Um, and then there was a certain point where I saw how much cheese we had in the cave and how many customers we had on the customer list, and I was like, this is not ever gonna work. So, <laughs> so getting us to you know, work with distributors and, and getting us to you know, kind of branch out, like we're in California now, which is you know, a huge deal for us, and, um, and things like that. It's, it's been, I honestly love my job. It's mm -hmm. been great. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of that has to do too with the fact that the position that I, I you know, started in has changed dramatically mm -hmm. to the position that I'm in now. So it's not just sales and, and marketing and distribution. It's also our events that we have, mm -hmm. um, you know, from the cave music to the pop-up shops to then also doing things at like breweries and doing things with restaurants. And so I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's just changed a ton, but the logistics, I kind of love it. I kind of love figuring out like, how do I get this to you and in, in like the best shape? And it's, it's kind of fun for me. Yeah. It's like a big puzzle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one, one I thought I had was 
you know, wondering how how big of a difference you have seen in different cheeses you've had before you started aging them here and then decided to take them on as uh, partners um, and and put the cheese in the cave. Is there an example that each of you could think of that of a cheese that felt like it really had a you know a significant change or something was sort of significantly um, impacted from the the affinage that you're doing here? Um, yeah, certainly. Um, and maybe it's <laughs> I, I'm also I'm assuming every cheese is significantly impacted. <laughs> but what's the, what's a real standout? Maybe something that surprised you or um, was extra noteworthy in terms of the change. Um, we are in in the middle of a very, I would say, good run um, with our, our Bufarolo, um, mm-hmm. in particular our Wasp Bufarolo, which was... And Bufarolo is? <laughs> it is um, the uh, pasteurized uh, water buffalo milk cheese uh, from uh, the producers Quattro Bertoni, um, and they're in Bergamo, Italy. Okay, great. It's delicious. <laughs> Listeners, if you haven't had it, definitely it was need my to f- check it out. It was my favorite cheese before I started working here, and it has remained my favorite cheese. Wow. Okay, so back to the Bufarello. Um, and it's very interesting because it, it is one that we take the same cheese, um, you know, it's, it's vacuum bagged, it's on a um, container that goes across the Atlantic for six to eight weeks um, in, in cold storage, uh, and then sits in our walk-in for sometimes up to another four weeks before it actually goes into the cave. So it's, mm. it's been in vacuum for quite some period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it goes into the cave, and uh, some of it goes into an, what we call our natural rind buffalo, and some of it goes to our washed rind. And so we get the same raw material mm. that goes in two very different directions. Uh-huh. Um, and with the washed version, we used to have a sort of very sticky, um, kind of goopy rind, and we really changed um, our washing program in terms of what we were washing with, how frequently, um, the type of brush we were using. And then about maybe, uh, I don't know, 12 to 18 months ago, we started to see this really dramatic change in the rind development. And with that, a really dramatic change in the flavor. And so that was really rewarding to see that, that whole process come about and we've been able to maintain it um, since then. And it's only, hopefully, thankfully, it's, it's grown in popularity since that time period. Wow. I hope I get to taste a piece at the end of this interview. I would, I would love to. <laughs> I would love to. Amazing. Um, okay, well, I can't believe it, but we're getting to the end of our episode time here. Um, for our listeners who are also dying for a taste of the Crown Finish Caves aged Bufarolo and other stars of the show here, what's the best way for people to find your cheese? find out uh, where it is, what it is, um, where, where, do you direct, where can we direct everyone? Um, so on our website, we have a, a pretty definitive list of places that carry our cheeses, um, and it's organized by state. So mm-hmm. yeah, you can figure it out from, from there. Um, yeah, th- there's so many to list. It's, it's been really <laughs> nice. It's, been, it's a long list, which is great. <laughs> cool, long growing list. Check it out on the Crown Finish Caves website. Um, and for those events, what's the best way for people to hear about those kind of fun accoutrements that you guys do here in addition to the affinage, those cave music and other stuff? Um, so I would say social media, Instagram, um, is probably the best way, but also all the information's on our website. We're taking a brief, uh, hiatus, summer break from that programming. Um, we're all taking our vacations and stuff like that, much earned. Um, 
So it'll pick back up in the fall, but I think the best way is to either sign up for our email list, which you can do through our website as well, or follow us on Instagram, which is just at Crown Finish Caves. Great. Well, Caroline, Ethan, thank you so much for joining me on air today. Thanks for having us. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, we hope you enjoyed these, this episode. Please keep the conversation going with us on Twitter and Instagram at Cutting the Curd or shoot us an email at Cutting the Curd at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. If you have any questions about affinage, we can ask our experts here, right here in Brooklyn. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with more Cutting the Curd. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.